I think Rossi got into some trouble. Uh, I know that Cram was really afraid of him. I, I had I had heard that Gacy had grabbed David Cram one night and got him into the handcuffs, and uh, but Cram uh, was able to drop kick Gacy in the groin and got the hell out of there. Went to a police station and had the cuffs taken off. And then he actually showed up for work the next day. How true that is, I don't know. All I know is that somebody put me in handcuffs, tried to do what Gacy tried to do. I wouldn't be working for him anymore. You know, I wouldn't just be having the cops take the handcuffs off. I'd be having them go back to the house to arrest the SOB. So I don't know how much truth was in there. But I know towards the end of our investigation, Cram was was afraid of him, and I think Rossi was too. The leverage that we had, I'm told, with Rossi was that Rossi and Gacy were having an affair. This is why Rossi was making more money than than the other ones were, because Gacy was doing Rossi. And the leverage that we as a police department had was we knew about it, but his wife didn't. And he was cooperating with us so that we wouldn't tell his wife about what him and Gavesy were doing together, which I believe she eventually found out. Now, whether they stayed together after that or not, I have no idea. I don't think they were involved in the actual murders. Um, they were digging the trenches in the crawl space. And it's kind of hard to believe that they wouldn't think what's going on here because, I mean, you're digging these trenches and then you don't see any other work going on. If he had other work going on, why wouldn't he have us going to do the work? Because that's why they were doing it, because he couldn't do it anymore. He wasn't strong enough to go down there and dig up that stuff. So they had to have some suspicion. I mean, they did that, and then because of the flooding or whatever it is in his crawl space, but they never did the second part of the job. And... Uh, it was kind of ironic that, um, but when I was in investigation, I had uh, Force Preserves head of their investigation unit. And for the a year and a half uh, that I had it, we had over 90 death investigations, which was a lot of investigations. I mean, uh, a few murders, uh, a lot of accidentals, you know, on bike paths, whatever, um, and a lot of suicides, tremendous amount of suicides. And... So I got a call one morning, on a Saturday morning it was, that uh, we had a suicide over at the bottom of Milwaukee in the woods there. And I said, well, all right, it's a suicide hanging, hung himself, so you handle it and then, uh, you know, let me know what happens. And So I didn't go out on this one for whatever reason. Uh, they get all done. They call me up, and it was David Cram. And I just, oh, what? Because I couldn't. I would have loved to talk with the family, uh, but I, I didn't feel comfortable doing it after the fact now, after they'd been notified and all that kind of stuff. But uh, that uh, the only contact I had with Rossi at the time was when he pulled up in that morning that we made the arrest uh, at Cram's house and just was throwing that crap all over the place. And I knew that he was at a station a lot and for a long time when he was there, just by, you know, at the end of the shifts we... Um, and I just, you know, between, uh, Conkle Sullivan, uh, what they knew, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's some things that went on that I, I would never know about and that, that I need to know about. Um, but, uh, I can't imagine that if they were involved in anything, uh, they wouldn't have charged them. Uh, Gacy said on one of those first statements, uh, I think it, after the Lyme thing, um, he asked, who else do we have in the station? And I says, nobody else. Why, John? He says, because they were involved. And um, I, I just, it's one of them things that we got moved, and then we were starting to get into that uh, when we got interrupted. And unfortunately, never addressed it more.
Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata. This is episode five, One Man's Trash. I am going to consistently remind listeners, new and old, if you are starting this podcast on any episode other than episode one, Dead Man Talking, you will be missing so much crucial content and context that it will be the equivalent to jumping into the Game of Thrones five episodes in and trying to figure out who is who. And wait, is that guy screwing his sister? Okay, maybe it's not that insane, but you get the point. Also, we love each and every one of you that listens to and enjoys our show. But we will love you just a little bit more if you subscribe, follow, share, rate, and review it as well. That is how the magic happens. And how I don't have to retire from podcasting and go back to exclusively practicing law. Okay, enough sniveling and begging. Let's dig in. We left off last episode with the boys in blue doing yeoman's work in the first few days of the investigation. Within 12 hours of Rob Peast vanishing, they had a suspect. Within four days, they had basically put together enough evidence on John Zick's disappearance in early 77 to arrest Gacy. As I started plowing through the police reports, I began to wonder why in the hell didn't they arrest Gacy on the Zick case earlier than when he ends up getting arrested. I assure you, I have represented clients that have been arrested on far less evidence. For instance, Google Dr. Anthony Garcia, Omaha, Nebraska. There, they basically had mere presence in the state and a narrative that the state believed in wholeheartedly. It'll be a good primer for you since we are leaning heavily towards that case being the subject of our second season. And it's an unbelievable case. At any rate, Zick, why no arrest on the 16th? I will most assuredly be asking Terry Sullivan, who, if you remember, was spearheading the investigation from the state's attorney's office, if I can get him interviewed, which I've been trying to do diligently. You may be asking yourself, why do the cops need the okay from up on high to make the bust? Well, the way it works in the real world, which is nothing like the law and order type shows that are so beloved, is that the state's attorneys are the ones who make the call on whether an arrest should blossom into the arrestee actually being charged with the crime. Now, it's your favorite time and my favorite time. It's hypothetical time. In situations where police nab someone during the actual commission of a crime, say they observe a drug dealer hit his stash spot, pull something out and hand it to a customer, and then they see money exchange hands, the cops can and will make that bust. They'll cuff them, transport them, and process them back at the station. But before they officially charge him with anything, they will call the ASA on duty and tell that person the facts, and then, and only then, the state's attorney, not the officers, will decide what charge or charges to hit the offender with. In a case like Gacy, where there's an ongoing investigation, you can bet your ass that the ASA is getting constant updates as to any significant developments. Remember, the goal of both the police and the state is to close the case, meaning they have a good, clean bust that survives pretrial attacks on searches and seizures, and then they get a conviction at trial. Don't forget, it's your hard-earned money that is taxed, which funds not only the police, but the entire judicial system, which includes the state's attorneys, the judges, the clerks, the bailiffs, everyone in that courthouse. And because of that, they are not in the business of losing. They can't afford to be, because state's attorneys, the actual state's attorneys, are elected. It's political. And if they are shitting the bed left and right, wasting taxpayer money, they are more likely than not done come the next election. So the stakes are high. And the bottom line is that it's the state's attorney's office that unequivocally makes the call on what the offender is charged with, not the police. In the Gacy case, the cops are out there collecting evidence and reporting back to their superiors, who in turn are reporting to the state's attorneys that are overseeing the investigation. So back to why not collar Gacy on Zick? Well, the best that I can figure is that there was a legitimate and warranted concern that the ever-important ring that was found during the search on the 13th was going to get tossed out at trial as fruit of the poisonous tree. If that ring goes, everything that they have found after as a result of that ring, which in Zick's case is everything, is tainted and in peril of being suppressed also. So they decide to hold off and keep working the case. Well, uh, like, that's my opinion, man. And we will hear from someone to confirm or deny that in a future episode. So if you recall from the last couple of episodes, we have heard from Detective Mike Albrecht. 
that one of the strategies that Gacy employed early on was to use his friends as a smokescreen to try and thwart the attempts by police to follow him and gather critical information. One can only imagine the lines of bullshit that he was feeding his friends like Ed Hefner and Richard Raphael, Ron Rohde, all three of which were partners with Gacy in various business ventures. But this list is not all-inclusive, not by a long shot. Let's see what Detective Mike Albrecht has to say about it. The same story that a lot of the detectives that were doing the interviews of Gacy's associates and friends were, that Gacy was just a great citizen. I mean, he got arrested for sodomy. Uh, in Iowa, which was probably pretty extreme. and But he got into prison. He was a model prisoner. Um, but we would go into uh, these places and people just gravitated towards Gacy. Uh, I mean, he was obviously very well liked. Uh, and as the week went on and guys like Tovar and the other investigators were doing the interviews with his contacts, his friends or whatever, um, they started... Uh, um, I think thinking there's maybe more to this than we'd ever think of and kind of drifted away from Gacy a little bit. And so I, I kind of feel by the time it was all over with, um, cause his total demeanor changed. Uh, we were about all he had left to talk to. Uh, and, uh, I think we use that to our advantage. There's a picture that he has that he cherished with Rosalind Carter and What's strange about that picture is that he has a Secret Service clearance pin. And if you're convicted of a felony, first of all, you shouldn't be able to get close to a, the president or his wife. And that was just never brought up on uh, why um, he got that close to Rosalind Carter. And, you know, uh, obviously to make any difference to him, but I mean, other than to brag about it. But he, I mean, he, he had these huge uh, parties during the summer July 4th especially. And it was basically as a who's who of Chicago politics that would show up uh, in his, his house for these big events. The cops were able to ward these buddies off by turning it back on them and questioning them repeatedly. Eventually, these guys got the message. But Gacy had a couple of other friends that really stuck by him to the end. One of those guys is a name that you've heard multiple times, Michael Rossi. He's the guy that ended up with Zick's car and unbelievably was driving it around unencumbered without a care in the world for nearly two years, up until the day Gacy was arrested. The other man who you have not heard me mention was named David Cram. Both of these men were Gacy loyalists, and they both happened to work with Gacy at PDM. So we're on about the 16th of December in our narrative of the investigation. This is the point in time that the police are starting to realize that these two guys appear to be a bit more than just employees of Gacy's. Actually, significantly more than just a bit. David is a, a, a pimp and a drug dealer. And because of this, he wants to keep his own background private. You know? I think when I showed you that clipping on that murder of those, those, those boys, and, and that other guy was involved with it, that guy is a friend of David's who came to work for me. His dad has got a criminal record. Go down to the California Street Shakespeare Avenue Station and ask about Cram, the word Cram that's known down there. They Would you say that he is of normal intelligence, below normal? Uh, you know, from your contact with him, speaking to him. David, David Cram. Able to form, um, he's intelligent, ideas. but he can't, he can't keep his mind on one, one thing too long. He gets, he's impatient. He, want, he wants to be at the top right away, for one thing. Secondly, my evaluation of David, he's too quick-tempered. He's always looking for the easy buck, and he lies like a son of a bitch when he, when he doesn't get his own way. He and I, when he was working for me, he was off and on working for me for the two and a half years. I believe that he would, he would either quit or would fire at least seven times where we came into confrontations where I would not tolerate that kind of bullshit on a job. You do it my way or you get the hell out. And at times he took it to leave. Or when he really upset me, I would kick him out. The reason he lived with me also, and during the time he lived with me, the sex did not pick up. Then we, we had been uh, talking about oral sex and stuff like that. And uh, I had, uh, was first 
person around, or we were, we were bullshitting about that when we were smoking and we were drinking. And uh, I got him to put the handcuffs on himself. But she did. And I got him into oral copulation. I, I believe I did him and then he did me. Um, he left. I, I dropped him off around midnight or, or after midnight, one o'clock in the morning. So he had stated to me the next day, you know, he came back. He came the next day to start working. And uh, I had stated to him, I didn't think he was going to surprise that you came back. He said, what? He says, when I left your house, he said, I was going to go home and get my gun and come back and kill you. Because I had more or less uh, got him into to something that he claimed he had never done no, but I mean, I he, he uh, we both came off. But I so the next morning when he, he showed up for work, I, I I told him I was surprised that he showed up for work. Of course, I didn't say it from the other employees or whatever. But on the side, I had talked to him. He had stated that he had thought when he went home he was going to go get his rifle and come back and kill me. And I stated to him, I said, "Well, why didn't you?" Because he said, "No, he had thought about it, and there was nothing wrong with what he had done." In the three and a half years, yeah. based on uh, uh, based on fifty two weeks out of a year, I would think there were times that it was once or twice a week. There was times that it was twice in one day, and then there was uh, towards this last year, it, it spanned out as much as two weeks. When Rossi wanted something, he knew how to so. That, uh, he didn't like it. No, never knew. I didn't. I didn't go in for it. Uh, on a lot of occasions, well, when Rocky had a key to my house, Rocky would come over in the morning. Sometimes I could be laying in bed, and he would just come on over and blow me. Before I was even out of bed, I'd be sleeping in bed. He would just come in, take his clothes off, and get, uh, you know, get out of bed. And I used to tell him, like, well, if you don't like this, how come? How can you always get hired? Now, how can you always get into it?" Because he was always looking for something. He always wanted something. We had never had no arguments about it. But just at the point of where he was getting more serious with, with Kathy that he didn't like the idea. In fact, I, he was going to quit that reason. I said, well, I said, you're the one that, that boys it out. So I said, if you don't want to get into it, why don't you? You tell me when you want to do it. So as Gacy was apt to do, he hired young men. Rossi was 16 when he started working for Gacy in June of 76. Cram was 17 when he started in August of 76. Gacy started killing, at least on record, in 1972. So he was four years in when he took these two guys on, killing and burying victims in the crawl space. Gacy had two modus operandi, or MOs. Either he would target young men who had lost their way in life and were basically unaccounted for, so when they went missing, there was no one there to sound the alarms. This is not to say that all these young men didn't have people that loved and cared for them, but simply they had fallen out of contact with their people to the extent that they would not be aware that they were missing. This was a solid plan for him to stay off the cops' radar. His second MO? Not so much. Which was to lure young men to work for PDM by offering substantially higher pay than they could make anywhere else. Almost immediately after hiring these young men, he would make aggressive sexual advances. How these young men responded to their boss's overtures typically decided their fate. Rob Peast being a prime example. But Rob wasn't the first young man that had this happen to him. No, not by a long shot. Somehow, however, Cram and Rossi survived Gacy and his house of horrors for a couple of years. Not only a couple of years, but Gacy's busiest years of his deadly hobby. That fact alone raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? Let's see what Tovar's up to. It's December 17th, and around 10 a.m., Lieutenant Kozenzak tells Tovar that Gacy's ex-wife, Carol, yes, he was married, twice actually. And yes, she was living in the house with Gacy until 76 when they divorced. Yes, I know that's fucked up. Anyway, she tells him about an individual that may be missing that has a link to the creep. Namely, he worked for PDM back in 1975. The kid's name? 
was John Butkovich. Tovar takes this information and grabs the phone book and searches for a Butkovich. He finds a Bukovich, slightly different spelling than the name Gacy's ex gave, but it's worth making the call. He rings the house. Someone answers. They have no one missing in their family, nor do they have anyone named John. At about 10.15, Tovar then calls the Missing Persons Bureau for the city of Chicago, and Officer Frazier answers. Tovar gives the name to Frazier, who punches it in the computer, and they get to hit instantly. Uh, oh, wait, that didn't happen because it's 1978 and they don't have databases like that yet. What he actually does is he puts down the phone and he goes to the filing cabinet and pulls the missing persons file from 1972, which Chicago PD has neither looked at nor investigated at any point in the last six years. He gives a negative result. Tovar terminates the call. At 11.30 a.m., Frazier calls back and informs Tovar he actually decided to look into it a bit more and that in 1975, they had one. A kid by the name of John Bukovich went missing on July 21st, 1975. He was 18. He gives him the last known address. Tovar terminates the call. Tovar grabs the Haynes book, which is a directory that gives known phone numbers associated with certain addresses. He gets three results and calls all three. None of them have a damn thing to do with John Bukovich. Tovar tracks down Bukovic's date of birth and runs it through Leeds and NCIC, and neither produces a hit on the name as a missing person. Tovar calls back Chicago PD, and they confirm that it's still an active case. You can't hear it, but I'm shaking my head. And he is given the name of an officer, Burkhart. That is being the one that handled the case from Area 6 missing persons. Tovar calls this Burkhart guy, and he informs Tovar that the information he has is that the kid was down around Clark Street with some of his friends the night before he was found to be missing. And while there, he was involved in some kind of disturbance. Nothing drastic. What? Burkhardt continues that the kid was supposed to move into an apartment the following day, but that never happened. He goes on that the used 1969 gold and black Dodge was found about a block away from the apartment that he never moved into. Inside his vehicle? was his wallet and jacket. Tovar listens intently as Burkhart drones on. Approximately four months later, Marko Bukovich, John's father, calls Burkhart and informs him that he received a collect call from a girl calling from Puerto Rico who indicated that John was with them and that he was fine. And then she hangs up. Burkhart, in a display of crack police work, is able to trace the call back to the business in Puerto Rico where a man named Juan Perez answers and states that the phone in question is a business phone and is used by many people, and he had no more information. Burkhart's incredible sleuthing continues. He says, quote, The only thing odd about it was that all the friends who used to come by the house all of a sudden stopped coming by at all, and all of a sudden uh, they never heard from again. Oh, and uh, yeah, the youth did hang around with Puerto Ricans. He adds as a final aside, that the youth had worked for a company called PDM, located at 8213 West Somerdale, Norwood Park Township, and that he contacted, quote, those people, but they advised him that he had been terminated. And as a matter of fact, the subject never removed his money out of the Ravenswood Bank that he had left, end quote. Burkhardt adds one last thing, that he had heard that the subject had been going to Puerto Rico and had been running dope. After Tovar replaces his eyeballs back into their respective sockets, he terminates the call. Tovar then calls Detective Jim Ryan and asks him to take a ride with him over to Area 6 to pick up a copy of the original report. And they do exactly that. And upon review of the report, it's pretty much the same information as Burkhardt gave, except a collect call from Puerto Rico came in a year after Bukovich was reported missing, not four months. Oh, and finally, there was a PDM business card in the subject's wallet, which had the name John Wayne Gacy on it. Wow. What in the ever-loving fuck was the Chicago Police Department doing in the 70s? Tovar on the 16th and 17th has already linked Gacy to these two young men that had vanished, while Chicago PD sat idly by. Think 
you're assuming that Butkovich is the second. Yeah. He was buried in the garage. Okay, and I, I remember getting into an argument with him, but it's not, again, it's not like the way they think. Butkovich was out to my house with three others. They came out there, they were drinking, I was drinking, we had drugs. All four of them left, including Butkovich. All four of them left. Butkovich and his three friends, they all left. Okay, because John was doing the driving. Okay. What happened then? Okay. I think they left around 10 or 11 o'clock. I think that I either took a nap or still was high enough that I, I got it in the notion to go out driving. I went out around midnight. I went down to Buckhouse Square, which was the usual routine. In the process, there was nobody down there or nobody that looked right, so I cruised on down Lakeshore Drive. Got off at Montrose, was cruising around Montrose Avenue uh, Lakefront, Foster Avenue Lakefront. I ran into Buckovich on Lawrence. No, I ran into him actually first. I spotted his car down at Foster Avenue Beach at the Lawrence Avenue exit. Then he uh, had stopped his car at Sheridan Barn. And I pull up, I, I double parked, and never even parked the car. And I stopped. And he asked me what I was doing. I said, I was just out cruising around. He said, I'll ride with you. Now, this is after we had just had an argument. About an hour ago. Two or three hours ago. Because this had to be around 1 o'clock in the morning. He got into my car. He got into my car. We drove around for a while, then he wanted something to drink. So I said, well, instead of spending any money, let's go out to my house. We went back out to my house. We drank some more. In your car? In my car. We drank some more. We, we smoked a couple of joints. Uh, I think the handcuffs were behind the bar. And then he started talking again about me, that he just kicked my ass. Because he was, he, was, he was telling me about his problems with his dad, and that he needed the fucking money. I said, that's fine. I said, I who's going to pay for the goddamn carpeting? He said, well, just one third out of the apartment and shit like that. I said, fuck no. I said, no. you know, you're sticking me for $325, and then you want me to give you a check for $125. What was he arguing about, initially? He had left because he had gotten into it with his dad, and his dad took an apartment away from him. With his dad taking the apartment away from him, but now, meanwhile, the day before, he had just gotten into a fight down on Halsted and Ohio Street. No, not Halsted and Ohio. Halsted and, uh, and, uh, and Clinton or somewhere in that area. They had, they had gotten into an argument. In fact, they beat up somebody with a pool stick. They? You mean him and his friends? It's, uh, the Puerto Rican buddies. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, he wanted to get out of town because they were going to come and get him. That's why he wasn't going home. His dad had kicked him out of the house. His dad had kicked him out of the apartment. Told him that it was no good and all that shit. And wanted to get rid of him. No, just get out. I told him somebody's going to have to fix the carpeting. He charged the carpeting to me, you know, and uh, then his father took the apartment back from him to rent it out and then he was going to not pay for the carpeting, which was $325. He had a check coming of, I believe, $125 to $150, somewhere in there. He wanted his check. And he said, I could get the carpeting back from his dad. I said, like hell. And I'm going to go argue with your dad. So then he, would, he got into an argument with me. That's what the argument was over. The same argument was expressed to his dad, and his dad knows it even to this day. John knew he couldn't get his check until he paid the $325, because I told his dad, then his dad says, well, this was after John disappeared. He said, give me his, make, he said, the hell with John, make the check out to Marco. That's like hell I am. I said, are you going to pay me for the carpeting first? Or, to, or I'm going to take the carpeting out? He said, no, you're not. You don't give me carpeting. You know, and it's broken English. So when he got back to the apartment, then, no, we were drinking to my in your house, I'm sorry. We are drinking, and we got into a fight, and then about the same thing, basically. It felt like he wanted to fight again. So, we were fucking around, arguing back and forth, and uh, 
I talked to him and put him in the handcuffs on. Once he got the handcuffs on, I pinned him down and I told him, I said, man, you might as well settle down and get it straight for once and for all because I am not going to give you a check. I said, I'm going to shoot. What the hell do you do? Uh, and then he said, let me up, let me up. I said, let me up until I get done explaining it. I said, you know goddamn well you owe me for the carpeting. You're not getting your money until I get mine. And then he told me that if I didn't let him up, or what I, if I would let him up, he'd kill me. Threatened to kill me. So if I get loose, he says, I'll kill you. He said, because he had nothing to lose. I said, well, if, that, if that's the way you think, this is different. Then it's either you or me. I am assuming from that point forward, I don't remember if I killed him or I just left him on the floor there. I do know that he was dead. When did you remember him being dead? Around 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning when he came out of my bedroom. He was still laying on the living room floor. Did he have his clothes in? Yep. Were his hands still handcuffed? Yep. In the back of him or in front of him? In the back of him. When he was dressed? Yeah. How was he? I don't know. <coughs> I don't know if they found him with his clothes on or off. I don't know if I took his clothes off to bury him or buried him with his clothes on. How was he killed? I'd like to take a step back here from the investigation for just a minute. If you've listened to the entire series, you know that this case has been a part of my life for the past 40 years, in some capacity. That being said, I probably know as much, if not more, than most people on the planet as far as the ins and outs of this case. And despite all of this knowledge, and having an idea that the Chicago police had dropped the ball on some of the earlier cases like Butkovich and Zick, I clearly didn't know it all. Because when the case first broke and news agencies were racing for the next scoop with regards to everything Gacy, both the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune ran some stories, really from the information provided by the victims' families, that they had gone to the police with very similar stories to the peace story and they wanted answers as to why their son's cases weren't handled by the Chicago police the same way that the Peast case was being handled by the Displains PD. And you know what? It's a really good question. Why? Why weren't the cases treated the same way? These families deserve answers, even now. When we started this podcast, the idea was to dig into this case in a way that had never been done before by anyone. And that's exactly what we are doing. We are focusing on the investigation, the victims, and we will be focusing on the trial later in the season. But I have been so taken aback, stunned really, by the absolute gross incompetence by members of the Chicago Police Department that it begs the question, are these repeated failures victim after victim with the Gacy case by the Chicago police, merely to be chalked up to lazy cops just deciding to mail it in? Or is it possible, maybe even likely, that something more sinister, more deep-seated, more corrupt was going on in this case? If anyone in here has watched The Devil in Disguise or The Clown and the Candyman docuseries that are currently streaming, then you are aware that there's a theory out there that Gacy may very well have been part of a much larger human trafficking ring, a cabal of serial killers, if you will, that had resources to accumulate victims with little or no effort because there were people out there doing that for them. I had dismissed these concepts for years as I thought they were clearly just conspiracy theorists just finding common threads between killers and then running with it. But after digging into the investigation files and reading these interviews of certain Chicago police officers that were conducted by the Displains PD, it really has me rattled. Tracy Ullman was one of the executive producers of The Devil in Disguise, and we will be flying out to interview her, as she is a very knowledgeable resource as she has done a huge amount of digging. And moreover, she was shocked when her final edit came back from NBC that her entire story arc for that docuseries had been stripped clean of any of the controversial connections that she had uncovered during her investigation. Well, we have no such constraints. 
is we are independently produced. So my hope is that whatever portions of that story she may have been silenced on, we will reveal them. We obviously have to vet the information. And if they check out, you can bet your ass that we will be exposing them. That will be done in season two of the Gacy Tapes. For now, back to the investigation. We are currently about six to seven days in, sitting on December 17th. The investigators are out pounding away at whatever they can dig up and simultaneously trying to fend off Gacy's buddies, all the while still desperately searching for Rob Peast. The surveillance team is continuing to follow Gacy, and that relationship has changed. The team is becoming more and more aware of what an ingrained part of the community Gacy is. While they know that he's about as full of shit as one can be about many of the things that he brags about, they can see with their own eyes that this man is well-known and well-liked nearly everywhere he goes. So after he is dropped off at the station by Tovar, Detective Piquel and Investigator Bideau interview Gacy's friend and employee, Michael Rossi, about what he knows or doesn't know. Now let's remember Tovar recognized that Rossi was driving the same make and model car of that missing kid, John Zick. The two investigators interviewing Rossi at 1.35 in the afternoon on the 17th don't know what Tovar suspects about that vehicle or what he tracks down while the interview is going on, which is that those two cars are one and the same. Unfortunately, Detective Piquel is deceased, so we will be using his very detailed report of this interview to know what went on in that room for just under six hours. So Piquel starts off getting some background from Rossi, finds out where he was born and raised, where he worked in the past, and ultimately, he asks when he starts working for Gacy. Rossi states that he starts working with PDM in June of 76. Rossi goes on to state that in the winter of 1977 to 78, he moved in with Gacy until April of 78. We know that these statements are true as we have heard Gacy himself give nearly identical facts to us in the tapes. Piquel moves on to the present. He inquires what Gacy has been doing and saying over the past week. Rossi advises him that when the police talked to him briefly on the 14th, that Gacy quizzed him on what they had asked and what he had answered. He goes on and says that Gacy instructed him to pick him up on the 16th in the morning, that they worked until about 7 p.m., then knocked off and went to have a couple of beers. He goes on saying that Gacy had left with an electrician named Ed Fry. He also adds that Gacy had told him that he was pissed off about the cops hounding him and that he had paid his attorney 10 grand to file a suit in federal court about the cops harassing him, which by the way, is a true story. He also asked him if the cops had questioned him about the dope and the sex. He claims that he gave Gacy roundabout answers, no specifics. Piquel then changes the subject and inquires about past and present employees of Gacy's. Rossi spends the next hour giving names, ages, and dates of people that have worked for Gacy in the past. One of the names that Rossi brings up is the name Charlie Hatula. Says that he was in his mid-20s and that he had worked for Gacy last summer. So Rossi continues on and he tells him that Hatula had told him a story last summer about his ex-wife's brothers, who apparently hated him. So fast forward for a few days and we find out that Hutula is found dead floating in a river about 60 miles south of Chicago last summer, right after he quit working for Gacy. Hmm. All told, Rossi names 14 individuals that have worked for Gacy from August of 76 until present. The last name he gives is that of Gregory Godzik. He tells detectives that Godzik was between 19 and 20 years old and that he started working for Gacy in the summer of 77, just like Hatula, but that he only worked with PDM for two days and then left. Rossi tells him that Godzik had told him a strange story about his girlfriend's ex-boyfriend splitting his skull open. He adds finally in regards to Godzik that the police and his parents were both looking for him after he quit PDM. Piquel and Bedeau just elicited a huge amount of details from Rossi. This was very helpful information, far more helpful than Rossi believed it to be when he told it to them. 
they continue on with the interview and start asking Rossi about his activities on December 11th. On the 11th, Rossi claims that he only saw Gacy once, and that was around 11 a.m. when Gacy stopped by the job site to collect time cards. He said he spoke with him again around 3.30 via telephone, something about the job, but he can't recall exactly what it was. On the 12th, he said he was working, and at around 1.30 in the afternoon, Gacy and David Cram came to the site. They didn't stay long, and then they left. Between 9 and 9.30 that night, he takes the PDM van back to Gacy's house. And that's when he arrives to find two police officers talking to Gacy, which we know is true from prior episodes, specifically episode two. He states that the cops want Gacy to come into the station to make a written statement, and that Gacy says that he'd be in around 11. He says the cops leave, and then Gacy tells him to go to Ron Rohde's tree lot and grab a Christmas tree and that he'll meet him there after he runs an errand. Rossi claims that he takes the van, goes to the lot, and pays 10 bucks for a tree, and then waits for Gacy until about 11 p.m. Gacy is a no-show. He then says he drives back to Gacy's house and that he believes that Gacy was just standing in the driveway and possibly had just returned from the errand. So Gacy jumps in the van, and they drive to an area behind a hot dog stand called Ripper's where Christmas trees grow, apparently, because Gacy wants to cut down a tree. He then tells a story about last Christmas when they went to the same location behind the hot dog stand where they had found seven trees that had been cut and tied, apparently stolen from a tree lot. He then states that him and Gacy had taken those trees and sold them. Gacy then tells Rossi to get out of the van and look around. Rossi does so, and when he gets back in, Gacy says, hey, Take me back to Rhodey's tree lot, which they go to, which is closed. Then he claims he takes Gacy home between 11.15 and 11.30 p.m. So we know that Rob Peace's body is at the house in the attic when this entire scenario takes place. And we also know that Peace's body is dumped in the Displains River that very same night. Do you find this story to be credible? My father didn't, and he grills Gacy about it while they are going through the very statement that we are reviewing right now. Let's see what the creep has to say about this evening. Well, Rossi tells me he didn't get home until after midnight or around midnight. I'm assuming that he did or he didn't. Do you have any independent recollection of taking Peace's body out of the attic? Yeah, I think I brought it down from upstairs. Remember? Yeah, I had to. No, you didn't have to. Do you remember? I mean, do you remember? Well, if I didn't bring it down from upstairs, who the hell else knew it was up there? I'm the one who put did it Ross up there. I had to no? bring it down. I don't know if he did You keep did. saying I had to. You didn't have to do shit. What I'm saying is, do you remember Robert. right now? Right now? Can you remember? How there was no, a because I don't even know if there, I right? put him in the car or if I put him in the van. So you don't remember bringing him down? Yes, I would have to say that I did bring him down because when Rossi returned to the house after going to Rowley's, his body was right down in the hallway. In other words, if Rossi would have walked into the through the kitchen into the front hall, he would have seen so the body. So when Rossi came back from Rowley's, the body was already down. Yes, in the hallway. Yes, which hallway? Huh? Which hallway? The front hallway. The, the hallway leading to the bathroom. The bedroom. You remember putting the body in the trunk? I I know the, the truck was backed up to the back door. And I also know the car was brought. Rossi brought the car to the back door, backed it up. Or did you have a Christmas tree with him? Yeah, he got a Christmas tree. Oh, he <coughs> did he bring the Christmas tree in the house? No. <coughs> in the was van. It, was kept in the van? Yeah, and then we went looking for Christmas tree. We went looking for Christmas tree. Then he didn't have one when he came back from Rhodey's? Yeah, he had to have one. Then why would you go looking for Christmas trees? You didn't go looking for Christmas trees. We went for a ride. Yeah, we went looking for Christmas trees. But he had one when he came back from Rhodey's, and that That's was right. for you. He did tell me he had one. 
when he came back from Brody. So what was the choice? So you're right. To go get Christmas trees. But you didn't get any. No, we smoked a joint. We had a beer in the house. I don't. Re I don't remember. I, I Did you put the body in the trunk then and take a ride with the body instead of looking for Christmas trees. I mean, you wouldn't be looking for Christmas trees if you had one, right? No, but we were going to go look for Christmas. Well, Robert, I know, I know it don't make sense, but goddamn it, that's what I think we did. I know we went for a ride looking for Christmas trees. I think that's what we did. I'm not that's sure. what's in your mind. That's what our intentions were. That's what our plans were. Mm-hmm. With a Christmas tree in the van, you're going to go look for Christmas trees. Did we take the Christmas tree out of the van? I don't know. Did you have a Christmas tree in your house? No. I'm just going to leave that right there and let it simmer in your brain a bit. Piquel and Bedeau keep going at Rossi, hard. They ask Rossi if Gacy has ever given him any gifts, like, say, jewelry or watches. Rossi says no. Rossi then offers up, unsolicited, that he bought a car from Gacy's friend, a guy named John Zick claims that he paid 300 for the car after Gacy had told them that he'd gotten the keys from Zick and that he had gone to the city and found the car in Clarkin, Ohio. Gacy then tells him he can't take possession of the vehicle until he's paid off 200 of the 300 at the rate of $50 per week. So simple math tells us that the vehicle sat in Gacy's driveway for a month before he gave title to Rossi. Yeah, that story doesn't quite match up with Gacy's version of the same story that we heard in episode three, A Pocket Full of Dimes, at 23 minutes and 15 seconds, for those of you who might want to double check. Gacy states unequivocally that Rossi was there when he picks up the car. Go ahead, re-listen. I'll wait. Remember, Gacy and my father are reading through Rossi's statement while the tape player is recording. So when we hear Gacy telling his version, he is literally pointing out where Rossi lies in his statement. Rossi then goes on and admits about the gas stealing adventure where he threw on Zick's old plates before he stole the gas so that they couldn't trace the car to him. And they of course traced it to Zick, then to Gacy, then to him, which we also heard about in episode three. Except he adds one more thing that Gacy picked him up and brought him to the station, the station being the police station, where the issue was resolved. And the cop just told him to get rid of the plates, which Rossi said, yeah, I'll do that. So yes, both Gacy and Rossi were in the police station that day, and they must have left skipping with joy in their hearts as they laughed at how incredibly lazy and incompetent the Chicago police were. So back to reality, Piquel and Bedeau are wrapping up the interview. But before they do, Rossi gives them one more little nugget. He tells them that shortly after he started working for Gacy, that he found two wallets in a cabinet in Gacy's garage. He says that both wallets had identification in them, but they can't remember the names, but that one was from California. Oh, and he added, David Cram found the same wallets at some point. So, yeah... Cram and Rossi sure seem to know a lot of what would seem to be really weird shit about Gacy. I can only imagine what you're thinking out there. And yes, I'm thinking the exact same thing. We will dig into it, I promise. Before we check out of this episode, let's check in on the surveillance on Gacy. On December 18th, Gacy gets so ballsy that he actually invites Schultz and Robinson into his home for the first time. Yes. I said the first time. At about 6.30, we left, uh, we left Hagen's Fish Market and picked up, that's, I'm reading what he wrote, and uh, it, we left Hagen's Fish Market and picked up two pounds of shrimp and fresh perch, which we then took back to John's and ate our dinner. John was very hospitable, and while he reheated the food in the microwave, he showed us photo albums that he had put together from parties 
that he had previously told us about uh, the night we were at the Prime House. Uh, dinner at the spot, ba 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 ba. The walls were decorated with clown pictures and plaques and furniture. Furniture was sparse. The rear of the home uh, was a new addition. That was the family room, and that was on a slab. Okay. Oh, and that would have been on the 18th, Monday the 18th. Yeah, that would have been the first time we were in the house. That sure seems like a reckless maneuver for a man who has been so successful at getting away with murder for so long. Was that strategy meant to show them, hey, I have nothing to hide. Come on into the house and we'll enjoy some deep fried shrimp together. Or was it, I'm going to kill these two sons of bitches while they're in here. Obviously to the normal person, that option seems incredibly far-fetched. But are we dealing with a normal person here? Right. Or had he just realized that he was running out of time and that he was growing tired of the constant police presence? It's impossible to know what Gacy was thinking at this juncture. But what he does once in custody will shed some light as to his mindset, and we will dissect that in a later episode. Remember, this sick bastard was no idiot. He was street smart and savvy, and was always trying to stay at least two moves ahead of the police. And it's that time again to give shout outs to everyone that does so much hard work on this podcast and that really, without their help, it wouldn't be happening. And that starts with Darren Wood, who's my executive producer. He really makes all the magic happen. Producer Marty Fairley, the maestro of music, Taras Horaluski, and Ryan Gack, who mixes and masters all of Taras's fantastic music. Alex Carver, who created all the amazing art, and my wife, my partner in crime, Allison Mata, who makes all of the things behind the scenes that need to happen, happen. And finally, to you, the listeners, who without you and your support, I'd just be some old guy talking about an old case. So thank you very much. Keep listening. Make sure that you follow, subscribe, rate, and review. It means a lot to us and it means a lot to the podcast. See you in the next episode.